0: Good morning, church. It is a joy to be with you here. A joy to sing that song together as we think about again the hope that we have in Christ. A reminder that uh, Christ Himself is that anchor, he is that solid rock on which our lives are built. We've talked in recent weeks about how God's Word itself is foundation in a, a world that is constantly changing, where circumstances are constantly uh, causing us to adapt and. Nice thing is that God's Word and the foundation of Christ Himself, those things remain constant and sure and steady for us. Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is going to serve as our scripture reading for this morning. And if you need a copy of God's Word, I'm excited to draw your attention to a couple of our fine-looking scouts here who are going to be making their way to the back of the room. If you need a Bible, uh, just throw your hand up in the air and these strong little ones will make sure that you get one so that you can follow along with us here uh, this morning. thankful that they can assist us in our service here uh, together today. Again, Romans 12 is where we'll be opening to, and we're going to resume this morning in our series on the relational commitments that seek to strengthen uh, the local church. Uh, If you have that formal document that we've been talking about these last few weeks, if you don't have one, there is one at the back table for you so that you can follow along with us. But if you have that, you'll notice that the focus of our time this morning uh, is actually skipping ahead. Uh, The next one that would be on our list here is the one that has to do with corporate worship. Um, And I assure you, we are not skipping over that because we somehow have changed our mind and we no longer believe in that. I assure you, our commitment to corporate worship is as strong as it ever has been. But for the sake of schedules, uh, we want our pastor of music and worship to do that. uh, And it worked out better to do that next week uh, than this week. So we're just skipping ahead uh, with one uh, this week. And then we'll go back to that one next week. But today, our focus is going to be on biblical stewardship, and we have spent the last few weeks really laying the groundwork of this series of what it looks like for uh, the local church to be committed to the work of God and gospel ministry. It begins with that commitment to understanding the importance of how God designed local assemblies of believers to worship together, uh, that they are founded and committed to the authority of God's holy scriptures as the highest authority in their life, and that they are then led and joyfully uh, follow under the leadership of godly men who seek to care and minister to their souls called elders. And today, I would say, is where we begin to get uh, very practical, Uh, very practical as we consider the understood partnership that exists within a local church, and that is expressed through this idea that we call biblical stewardship And so that's what we want to seek to unpack together this morning uh, as we begin our time by reading and meditating on Romans chapter 12. So I'm going to encourage you to stand and honor the public reading of God's word. Romans 12 picks up in the middle of a, a, a very rich uh, portion of Scripture that Paul is writing, this letter to the church uh, in Rome and to these Christians here, really laying the, the, the joys and the depth of God's grace in the gospel. He does that for the first 11 chapters. And here at verse, or in chapter 12, this hinges and he begins to transition to understand in light of these gospel truths, how then shall you live? And this is what Paul has to say For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another." We'll stop there for this morning. This is God's Word, and you may be seated. And let's pray and ask now for the Lord to bless our meditation together now. Indeed, Lord, we do ask for your grace on our time together now. Um, we reflect here right out of the, the gate on the fact that you are God who has been abundantly gracious to us. You have been abundantly merciful and generous in your treatment of us. And so as we turn our attention to the subject before us now this morning, we pray that as we seek to... Be generous towards others and generous to the work of the church. May we be motivated, may we be grounded in that grace that you have first and foremost lavished upon us because when we see it that way, Lord, we have the right mindset that empowers us to do this work that is very supernatural. So would you please help us, humble us this morning as we seek to better understand and better seek to submit ourselves to your good desires and your words. We ask and pray to that end this morning. Amen. Well, the focus of stewardship may not inspire a lot of interest here this morning. In fact, I admit that the term stewardship may be a term that sounds a bit archaic or uh, perhaps foreign to many of us. Uh, Not to mention the fact that it can conjure up a wide variety of meanings. For many of us, we think of stewardship exclusively through the lens of our money or exclusively through the lens of how uh, a a building or a property operates. But what is stewardship, biblically speaking, and why is it at the heart of the commitment we want to look at as a church this morning? Uh, Because our our elders do believe, as we look at the New Testament Scriptures, we see stewardship as a uh, a precedent, as a a biblical uh, reality that is present in local church assemblies. Uh, That is why the commitment that you see there before you on your document or up on the screen says that I, as a member of this church, will generously steward my God-given resources and spiritual giftings for the spread of gospel ministry, you know, ingrained in that commitment is an action that is driven by a motivation with a particular goal in mind. The act is to steward. I am called to uh, exercise stewardship with an attitude. There it says of generosity. It's it's motivated. It's empowered by a particular mindset of generosity with an aim or a goal of furthering God's gospel ministry work. What I want you to see this morning is that biblical stewardship is an essential component of a healthy, growing church community. Uh, For our purposes this morning, if you want a main point, it would be this, that the local church is strengthened when its members are committed to stewarding their God-given resources for the spread of gospel ministry. Our our local church assemblies, in particular here in Newcastle Bible Church, are strengthened. They are built up when its members are committed to stewarding that which God has entrusted to them. And so my goal for us this morning, as in previous weeks, is to show you the joy that has been afforded to you by God in this type of commitment, When understood correctly, the stewardship of our God-given resources is not a burden, but it is a delight. It is a gift that God has designed for us in such a way that brings you maximum joy and Him greater glory. And so I want to explore that with you in the time that we have this morning. And as in previous weeks, we're going to do a lot of jumping around and thought, uh, encourage you to follow along as best you can. If you can't keep up, know that a lot of these uh, verses will be up on the screen or they're there in your resource uh, section of your note sheet. So please feel free to go back and study these in greater detail later. But before we get to some of those, I want to begin this morning with a couple important Uh, clarifying definitions. And after all, you come to church for word studies, don't you, right? We talked about that last week. What gets you up on a Sunday is the idea that you get to come here and you get to study words. And so I think two words are very essential for us to think about as we go into our study this morning. The first word is the word partnership. It's the word partnership. It's a word that is used by Paul in Philippians. When we looked at that uh, book last year, we really saw that this idea of partnership in the gospel, that Paul considered these people to be partners with him in gospel ministry. We'll talk about that uh, section later on, but this idea of partnership is really based in the concept of fellowship. Uh, And fellowship is really about our, our common salvation that we share as God's people together. And so, the partnership that we share as those who have been united by faith in Christ Jesus is an agreed upon relationship of love and support. An agreed upon relationship of love and support. Now, we're obviously familiar with the idea of partnership in the secular world. You might be able to have a, a partner in business, or if you are a partner in a law firm, right, you are a co-laborer in that particular work. And for the, for the church, it communicates then that there's so much more than just being a consumer. No, it communicates the idea that you are a participant, You are an active participant in the work of that local church. It even changes, I would argue, the way that you view or talk about your relationship to the church. Uh, No longer do you think of it when you're talking to people saying, well, oh, that's the church I go to. Uh, You think of it as, that's the church I am a part of. I am a partner in that church's work and ministry. This is a great compliment to the word we use for being a formal member of the church. To be a member, then, is to be an active partner in the ministry of the church. And this is important because it's foundational as it shapes the way we look at these particular commitments in the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, Because if membership is a partnership, then it also necessarily involves stewardship. It involves stewardship. And stewardship uh, is a word in the New Testament closely associated with uh, the management of particular assets that have been entrusted by a greater authority, by a master, if you will. And the goal of stewardship is not necessarily about a particular result so much as it is about faithfulness. Paul's ministry of the gospel was regarded as a stewardship. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, he says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 uh, reinforces this idea where he commends those who have been faithful with what has been entrusted to them by the master. He says to those who were good with their resources, who, who were faithful with them, well done, good and faithful servants. You can enter into the joy of your master. So faithfulness is about what you have been given by God to be faithful with. And that's what I want to consider this morning. What are the resources that we have been given by God that we are called to faithfully steward, generously steward in our local church partnerships? It's been commonly said that the the resources that we've been given as God's people uh, could be understood under the three T's of time, talents, and treasures. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. And so that's the lens that I do want to look at with you this morning. So we're going to go in reverse order there. So I want to answer each of these reasons or each of these uh, ideas with uh, the reasons why God has designed biblical stewardship For our good. And so let's take them in turn uh, as we look at the the New Testament together. Let's begin here with our money. Why do we give financially to the work of the church? Why do we give financially to the work of the church? There can be, I think, a lot of misconceptions about uh, our giving and our money and what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to accomplish for the local church. I know when I was a kid, I had misconceptions about what our money did or how our money was used. Uh, A couple weeks ago, our our girls were uh, going through a discussion card. At Christmas, I got our family discussion cards that uh, had all kinds of random things that you can ask at the dinner table and spark some fun, interesting conversation. And the question was, uh, what was something that you believed as a child that makes you laugh now? And it's interesting because right away, I had two responses. The first one was I was always confused as a child what happened to the food you put in your body and how long it would take before your body would fill up with that food before it began to overflow because I didn't understand how the body worked. Uh, If you're a kid who wonders that this morning and thinks that way, I can assure you that's not how your body works. And if you want to know, talk to mom and dad later about it. But the other thing I remember as a kid that I was so confused by was Where does our money go when we give it to the church? If this is money that we are giving to God, how does God get our money? Do we put it on little rocket ships and shoot it up into the sky and God gets it that way? As an adult, I understand it's much different, obviously. We use drones, not rockets. So, no, I'm just… Obviously, that's not what happens with our money, but our money is put towards the use of gospel ministry in a local church assembly. So why, though, do we give? What is the motivation? What are some of the joyous purposes behind why God designed us to partner in this specific way? I think there's a couple important ones for us to consider this morning, the first of which is this, that giving displays your worship. Giving is a practical, tangible, visible way to display your worship. We must understand that our money, like everything else, belongs to the Lord. Uh, It's something that he has given and trusted to us that is, first of all, his. We see this throughout the Old Testament as we look at tithes and first fruits being offered back to God as an expression of the people's uh, gratitude and understanding that what they first received for themselves actually belongs to the Lord and His provision to them. It was a reminder to the people that God is the one who has provided a way of expressing joy and thanksgiving while at the same time expressing faith, right? Faith, which is essential to the very nature of our worship. After all, we're dependent upon the Lord that he will continue to provide, especially when we give back to him. Uh, To surrender your money to the Lord shows your dependence upon God, trusting that he will continue to supply your needs while you continue to walk by faith in him. Again, I mentioned at the outset uh, the passage in Philippians 4, if you want to look at it with me. Philippians 4, Paul really rejoices in this sweet idea of uh, their giving being a part of an extension of their worship. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 4.15, You Philippians yourselves know that when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He would later expound upon that in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, at the heart of this, uh, this partnership is financial. It is, it is very much based in the, the money that they are giving to support Paul and his continued work in ministering the gospel Tony Marita says it really well like this. He says, quote, Paul shows us here the inseparable relationship between financial giving and gospel partnership. If you aren't giving, you aren't really a partner. You're more like a consumer or a customer. But Paul doesn't view the Philippians as customers. He views them as co-laborers. He views them uh, as co-laborers. He, the, they put skin in the game. Even though many of them weren't wealthy, they earned a reputation for giving sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully to support the mission, end quote. But even in this partnership, notice the heart of what Paul is getting at in verse 18, how he describes their giving to him. It's not just about them supporting him, it's about them worshiping. He says in verse 18, the gifts that you sent are a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God uh, this fragrant offering reminds us that when we worship God through our giving it is actually when we do so with joyful hearts it is a good sweet smelling aroma to him you all have things that you know are, are sweet smelling, whether it be the smell of coffee or a good candle or the smell of the baked goods that were out here this morning, right? You know those pleasing smells to God when we offer up our sacrifices to Him and our, our giving and do so with joyful hearts. It is a pleasing aroma, fragrant offering of worship that we give to God, this is why we consider our weekly giving an essential part of our worship as a local church family. It is a tangible, visible expression of our love for the Lord and his work. After all, worship is a matter of the heart, isn't it? And Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6:21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so our giving is an expression of the overflow of our heart, which really naturally leads us into the next reason that we do this giving. It's because giving actually guards our hearts. God gives us giving as a a grace to protect us. Truth is, we live in a world that prioritizes money and materialism comfort ease particular lifestyles retirement right all these things that tell us to prioritize and maximize as much as we can and that can be a confusing message and if we're not careful we can be persuaded to be rich in this world yet spiritually poor as stewards to god this is why Paul was concerned for the rich in the day of uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, uh, some of us may not consider ourselves to be financially rich, but the reality is many of us are richer than most parts of the world today, aren't we? And he just recognizes that for money, there is a tendency towards all kinds of potential dangers and temptations. And so Paul exhorts the rich in Timothy's time in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And didn't notice these exhortations he gives. They are to do Good. And to be rich in good works. And to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice Paul calls for them here to be rich in two ways. To be rich in good works. And to be rich in generosity. And the reason you notice in the final verse there is that this is what truly brings life. The uncertainty of riches will always be life taking. The generosity that comes from your good deeds and your giving back to the Lord are life giving. How often do we hear stories of people storing up for themselves wealth on this earth, yet are among the most miserable in this world? You see, giving fights against materialism, it is a safeguard that God has even given for the protection of our own hearts. That God in his grace knows that giving our money for kingdom purposes is what will give life and protect our souls from greed and the cares of this world. But there's a final benefit to giving that we have already alluded to. Uh, We give also financially because it increases your joy. Giving increases your joy. It not only communicates something about your relationship to God and your relationship to this world, but it communicates something very important about a greater satisfaction that you have in Christ. Back in Philippians 4, the people who were giving to Paul were not doing so begrudgingly. You see there, even in Paul's language, they're doing so because it's it's obvious to them. There's nothing they would rather do than to partner with Paul in his work. They understood the principle that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul picks up on this idea again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in verses 6 or 8. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, Paul understands the the connection here to giving and joy and thanksgiving. In fact, he picks up on this in verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. They see the joyful benefits of this partnership together, that God loves a a cheerful giver, a one who is motivated out of a joy for what that giving accomplishes. We see that all the time and the way that our money contributes to gospel purposes even in this church, right? Being able to put our money towards baked goods that ultimately benefit our global outreach partners, To be able to partner with causes that allow us to support our after-school program and our ministry to the community. To be able to partner with our Joy Club, to be able to provide supplies for them so we can provide a ministry to families. To be able to provide money and resources to support counseling and resources to those who need exposure to the Word of God as sufficient for their lives. All those things, when we see them play out, are a benefactor on our own soul's delight and joy and satisfaction in Christ. And so our stewardship as Christians certainly entails the way we think about and handle our money, but encourage you and your family here to look and consider what ways can you grow in this to maximize your joy. How might you be able to increase that, even bring your kids alongside you to figure out ways that you can do this together as a family, to delight in these things? While stewardship is not less than our faithfulness with money, it is certainly more, because another resource that God has given is our giftings and our abilities. That's why we could say, secondly, why do we serve sacrificially? It's not just why do we give financially and generously, but why do we also serve sacrificially for the work of gospel ministry in the church? You see, our partnership in the church is shown by our engagement in the work of the church. It's not as if we're just giving money out and we say, now you go do it. Uh, We're giving the money away and we're saying, now how can I buy in? How can I be a part of that work? In other words, God is calling us to not be spectators, but to be participants. I've shared it before, but there's a great quote from the old Oklahoma football coach, coach Bud Wilkinson, who once said that football is 22 men on the field in need of rest being watched by 40,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. Too often that is the case with churches. Praise God, I don't see that as the case here in Newcastle because we have a lot of buy-in. And it's a joy to see, but a lot of churches, that is the tendency to have very much a hands-off mindset that says, I'm going to invest, I'm going to go watch the game, but I'm not going to actually be on the field. But why should members of a local church, uh, metaphorically speaking, flex their spiritual muscles in sacrificial service? Well, I think that's, first of all, because God's grace is magnified through service. God's grace is put on display in our serving. In fact, the word used for gift for spiritual gifting that we see in the New Testament actually comes from the same root word for grace. Uh, that word charis, it's the word that from which we get charisma. Uh, it's the concept that's built into Peter and Paul's understanding of spiritual giftings. Uh, Peter talks about how our uh, spiritual giftings are an expression of stewarding God's varied grace. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about how we have been given particular manifestations, portions of God's grace with the intent to serve and contribute to the work of the church. In other words, You are not just saved by grace, dear church member. You are now empowered by grace to use those giftings to benefit the church. It is a visible way to show God's grace at work in your life. And that is a testimony to others that God has given a portion of this grace to every single one of his spiritual children. But secondly, God's church is built up through service. We give sacrificially or we serve sacrificially because the church is actually built up through our service. This takes us back to the passage we looked at last week and just alluded to a moment ago, but in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, uh, Paul writes about how God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers and pastors for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, as we said last week, God's building program for the church is not the pastors, it is the people. It is the saints. It is the people that God has called to that particular assembly. Uh, these gifts are meant to build up and to strengthen and to edify the local assembly of believers. Believers. Uh, Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed specifically for the edification, for the good of the church. Put another way, if you are a member of this church, your gifts are essential to our strengthening. And such is why Paul uses the body imagery of eyes and ears and hands and feet Each member has a different way in which he or she can seek to build up the local body of Christ. And that naturally brings us to the final consideration of this stewardship because such diversity is actually a means that God uses to unite his church. Or said a different way, God's family is unified through service. Have you ever noticed that, how God's church is actually greater unified when people are all working together and advancing the gospel ministry work? This was the language that Paul used in the passage that we read this morning from Romans chapter 12, where he says in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And he goes on to list how each of us have been given different giftings and abilities and ways that we contribute to the needs of the church. And though we are, there, there are many and different, they are all essential to one another. It helps us understand an important detail about your spiritual gifts. The fact that even though you have a spiritual gift, it's not for you. Have you ever thought about it that way? God has given you a gift and ability, but it's not for you. You don't keep it. I remember years ago with our rooted staff, it was probably the first year we started a a white elephant Christmas uh, gift exchange. And one of the things that popped up that first year was a uh, specialized potpourri dish uh, that I'm pretty sure was originally a wedding gift, if I'm not misunderstanding, right? Right? That never got opened. The ironic thing was this unique potpourri dish became a candy dish. And over the years, this potpourri dish would continue to make its appearance at the annual Christmas party. It kept being given over and over and over and over again. The gift that keeps on giving, right? You see, all these passages on spiritual gifts make it clear that you are not given this gift as something to display on your trophy shelf. Instead, you are called to be a spiritual re-gifter. Sharing that skill, that ability, that talent with others so that they might be strengthened, encouraged, or built up. And this diversity of gifts is actually what brings about greater unity when a body and all its parts are working together in love. Some of you have maybe wondered over the years, what is my gift? What what way do I get to contribute or what way should I contribute to the church? I would say too often we become paralyzed from serving because we don't know what that gifting is. We say, I got to know what it is before I can get in the game. And we seek assessments and formulas and things that help us to discover what is my gift. Can I suggest something that may sound perhaps simple or dare I even say unspiritual this morning? What do you like to do? What are you good at? What are the things that bring you joy and excitement? Can I now ask you where do those things match up at the church? Because the reality is there's probably some way that that fits in. You look at a church like Newcastle where there's giftings of sewing, cooking, maintenance, computers, music, kiddos, facilities. There is something that fits anyone who has those desires and those abilities. I actually really appreciate the way Tom Schreiner again puts this in his book. He says it this way, quote, We can say that in some respects it isn't crucial that you recognize and know your gift. Some worry excessively about what their gift is, and as a result, they are distracted from doing actual ministry. If you are involved in the church, if you are serving other believers, you are exercising your gifts even if you don't know what they are, and that is the most important thing of all. Or to put it another way we will discover our gift when we pour ourselves into the lives of other believers when we get involved in the life of the body, End quote. And so don't worry this morning about being able to label what your gifting is. Get in the game, find your groove in what you enjoy, and you, as a result, will be a part of the work that God is doing to build up his local church assembly. But There is one final resource that we must consider this morning, and that is the resource of our time. I ask this in the note sheet along this way, what does the use of our time communicate about our work with the church? The ironic thing here is I don't have much time to talk about time. Imagine that, right? A number of you men were at the men's breakfast yesterday where Jamar, our pastoral intern, talked about how we've been entrusted with our time. I would encourage you, if you want a fuller treatment of that, go listen to that audio. It's great. Uh, but it's interesting to note that time is the only resource that all of us have equality in. Uh, we don't have equality in the money in the uh, that God has given to us financially. Not all of us have the same spiritual gifting, but all of us still have 24 hours in a day, don't we? It's a great equalizer among the resources that God has given to us. It is a gift by God, but that also must be stewarded well. And so how we use our time communicates something. Allow me to give you three quick things that our, our time communicates about our stewardship, the first of which is the priority of partnership. Partnership. How we use our time communicates something about the priority we see in partnership. It says something about the belief and the importance of the church, whether or not we see it as essential or just a benefit to take hold of so long as it is convenient and can be worked into my schedule. Uh, you know, if church is inconvenient, then it becomes just one of those things that becomes pushed off to the side and time is not necessarily built around it. And I think this question or this idea goes deeper into your belief of what is the church for? Why does the church exist? Why is it necessary? Or if you think about this wrongly, why do you think it's unnecessary? But a good stewardship of your time means you see the priority of Christian community. You build your life around it for your spiritual good. And so it communicates something about how you prioritize your partnership in the local assembly, but secondly, it reflects something of the urgency for faithfulness. That's reflected in the many texts that speak of the coming return of Christ. When he tells about these in parables or in the epistles, when they talk about how the coming return of Christ is coming soon. That communicates urgency. It requires motivation to use whatever time that we do have well. That's the driving force of many of those passages. They give us perspective and urge us to be faithful to the time and the resources that God has given to us. And so when we see time for what it really is, it should summon us to forsake the lesser pursuits of this world in favor of faithfulness to god's work that he has entrusted to us and then third and finally the use of our time communicates something about the testimony of wisdom when we understand who we are in the brevity of this life we approach time much differently psalm 90 verse 12 moses prays the lord teach me to number my days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom Good stewardship of our time shows wisdom. It spurs on faithfulness. Our time is a gift given to us by God. I appreciate the way that Jonathan Edwards wrote of this in his personal spiritual resolutions. He says this quote, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I can. End quote. You see there in Edwards, he understood that every second that the Lord gave him is a stewardship of time, and his desire was not to waste a single moment, but to think, how is every moment an opportunity to be improved upon to expand the work that the Lord has entrusted to him? That there is the testimony of wisdom. And so as you reflect back on everything that we've seen this morning and it's been quick it's been a real flyover uh, picture of biblical stewardship my hope for you has been that you would be reminded today of just how gracious first and foremost god has been to you none of us deserved his grace to begin with yet he chose to lavish that grace upon us in salvation And then he multiplied that grace to us in our time, in our talents, in our treasures, allowing us to partner with him in the cause of gospel ministry through local church assemblies. That's a marvelous thought, right? That God in his grace would allow us to become partakers and participants and partners with him in that work. And so our commitment as a church to biblical stewardship is meant to drive us deeper into the love and appreciation that God has shown in his generosity first and foremost towards us. With that, I want to conclude with a quote that I was reminded of this past week from C.T. Studd that really sums up the mentality that drives biblical stewardship. Listen to this as we close. C.T. Studd said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That is the heart that drives generous biblical stewardship. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, as we end, we are just reminded again of the great treasure that we possess in you that you have freely lavished upon us by your grace. You have given us far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think or deserve. And that, Lord, that grace that you have freely given to us now is empowering us and calling us and beckoning us to be faithful stewards with our lives a CT study even reminded us there, "If we understand the, the nature of the sacrifice that you have made for us, then no sacrifice we can offer to you is too great in return." So I pray that you would indeed use the lives of your saints, the members of this local church body, to commit to you with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, the things that you have entrusted to us. May we return them to you like the elders in Revelation 4 who cast their crowns before the throne, who say at the end of the day, all that we have is from you and you alone are worthy of such things. May you receive the glory for that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.